Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today, we want to return to the subject of drug policy, and in particular, we want to focus today on the policies that are in place in the country of Portugal. Yesterday, the Cato Institute published this new report by Glenn Greenwald, which we titled uh, Drug Decriminalization in Portugal. And uh, because Portugal is not a country that actually borders the United States, we thought it would be useful to put a map on the cover to help Americans uh, <laughs> find that country. In a moment, Glenn is going to tell us uh, about his findings. But before he does that, I want to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for our discussion this afternoon. For a very long time, all of the academics and analysts who studied drug policy had to acknowledge one reality, and that was that the drug policy of the United States is actually the drug policy of the world. Policymakers here in the United States said there had to be a united front against the black market drug trade, and the U.S. would give money to some countries and would lean on other countries to maintain that united front. But that hegemony by the United States, although it held for many years, is now long, no longer the case. It did not receive a lot of attention at the time, but in 2001, Portugal decided to reject the hardline criminal approach to drug policy. Portugal decriminalized all drugs, including cocaine and heroin. It's not legalization because personal possession might still get you a fine, but it's not considered to be a criminal offense. The police still investigate and make arrests for drug trafficking offenses. So it is not, again, legalization. But by moving the personal possession of drugs out of the criminal realm and over to the civil side of the law, this move made Portugal the country with the most liberal drug laws on the books. Not many people know this. When you know, if people wanted to hazard a guess as to which country had the most liberal laws, chances are that they would select the Netherlands. And it's true that if you go to Amsterdam, in the coffee shops, you will find marijuana sold out in the open. But that's more of a function of the police looking the other way. They're not enforcing the criminal laws that they have on the books. So although it's very tolerant, when we're talking about countries' actual laws, Portugal has the most liberal rules that are on the books. Now, when that dramatic shift in policy took place, I thought this was going to be very interesting because it seemed to me that around 2000, 2001, the drug policy debate here in the United States had pretty much exhausted itself. Um, those of us who attacked pr the prohibition model said it wasn't working, although we were spending a lot of money, uh, you know, making a lot of drug busts, uh, building a lot of prisons, making a lot of arrests. Millions of people continued to use drugs. Drugs were still as widely available as ever. And uh, the drug prohibition policy did not keep drugs out of our schools. What we did get was we got a lot of corruption, a lot of crime, and a lot of curtailment of our civil and constitutional rights. Now, the drug czar and the defenders of prohibition, they would respond and they would say things, well, yeah, it's true, things are not going very well, but things would get even worse if we were to move away from the prohibition model and adopt something like decriminalization. They said drug use might spike, and there would be a public health crisis, and then it would be too late to turn back. So the, the, the feeling was is that the moving away from the prohibition model was just too risky. It was something that we couldn't do. So it's no surprise that many people predicted that when Portugal made its decriminalization move, they predicted that that country would deeply regret uh, moving in that direction. After a year or two of this policy in place, I waited to see if our drug czar at the time, John Walters, whether he would be pointing at Portugal as a reason why the United States and other countries needed to maintain the hardline criminal approach to drugs. But he never seemed to mention Portugal. And as the years passed, I began to suspect that Portugal might be a, a success story that he wanted to keep quiet. Well, with Glenn Greenwald's research findings, we at the Cato Institute want to make sure that this success story does get told. Before we turn to the details of the Portuguese policy and what the effects have been, I also want to very briefly mention how the overall political climate is shifting in this area. There's mounting sentiment in other countries, again, to move away from the prohibition approach. And I just want to rattle off a few newspaper headlines that have uh, been in my files over the past year or two. One headline read not too long ago, Canadian government tries anew to decriminalize marijuana. 
Another headline, Argentine president calls for decriminalization of drug use. Another one, Swiss voters back legalized heroin. And just a few weeks ago, three former heads of states, presidents of Mexico, Brazil, and Colombia, blasted the U.S. prohibition approach and called for a reexamination of that policy. Here in the United States, the political climate is also changing. Let me give you a few examples of that. In November, voters in Massachusetts approved a ballot initiative that decriminalized marijuana in that state. In New York, lawmakers are suddenly revisiting and discarding the Rockefeller drug laws that have been in place since the 1970s. These are draconian mandatory minimum sentences that are placed on nonviolent drug offenders, talking about 10, 15, 20-year sentences that the lawmakers in that state are suddenly moving away from. The new Attorney General, Eric Holder, recently announced that the Obama administration is going to stop DEA drug raids in California and the 12 other states that have made marijuana legal for medical purposes. And Senator Jim Webb has been in the news a lot lately. He's a Democrat from Virginia, and he's called for a national commission to take a top-to-bottom review of the entire American criminal justice system. And he's made it clear that that includes a reexamination of America's drug laws. And in just the past three weeks, columnists and pundits have been speaking out on this subject. Eugene Robinson in the Washington Post, Clarence Page in the Chicago Tribune, Jack Hafferty on CNN, Joel Klein in Time Magazine. On the right, Dennis Prager and Pat Buchanan. All of these people say it's time to rethink prohibition. So the point is, is that up until very recently, you see, drug reformers have been trying to move policy kind of against the political winds. But very lately, it seems as if these political winds are shifting and they're now at the backs of, of drug reformers. So I think that this particular study that we're releasing could not be better timed. So with that background in mind, let's turn now to our guest speakers. But before I do that, I just want to take just a moment to, to ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please double check, make sure that they are turned off as a courtesy to both of our speakers. Thank you. Our featured speaker today is Glenn Greenwald. Uh, Glenn came on the political and public policy scene about seven years ago. Before that, he was a successful attorney practicing law in New York. But he became alarmed by the way in which the Bush administration was rationalizing away constitutional safeguards in the name of fighting terrorism. He started his own blog, and in a remarkably short period of time, his blog acquired a huge following. Uh, and it that following just continues to grow. You can find his blog posts over at salon.com. Glenn has also authored several best-selling books. In 2006, it was How Would a Patriot Act? In 2008, he published a book called A Tragic Legacy, How a Good versus Evil Mentality Destroyed the Bush Presidency. And last year, he published Great American Hypocrites. And all of the, these books have been very, very popular. He's really established himself as a principal defender of the Constitution and civil liberties, regardless of which party controls the White House and the Congress. And he was in New York just a few days ago where he was uh, given an award for his independent journalism. One important thing that you may not know about Glenn Greenwald is that he's fluent in Portuguese. Uh, when we were looking to commission a study about Portugal, we were looking for a great researcher, a great writer, and somebody who knew Portuguese so he could get around that country. About a year ago, Glenn went to Portugal to do field research and to interview policymakers in that country to find out how things were going. And we're just delighted that he could be with us today to share his findings with all of you. So would you please welcome our first speaker, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, thank you very much for coming today, and thank you to the Cato Institute for sponsoring and enabling this report and, and this event, and, and thank you particularly to uh, Tim Lynch, who really played an instrumental role in conceiving of the idea for the report and, and in helping uh, to improve the manuscript and, and continuously offered um, helpful ideas and, and all sorts of uh, challenges. It's interesting that when Tim first suggested to me the idea of uh, examining the effects of decriminalization in Portugal, although I was, um, 
I'd say, fairly intensely interested in the idea of drug policy and drug policy reform. I hadn't actually been aware. Um, I was embarrassed to to realize that Portugal had been a country that lived under a decriminalization scheme, a full-scale decriminalization scheme, uh, for almost seven years. Although my embarrassment was somewhat diminished as I began talking even to drug policy experts in the United States who also were, if not entirely unaware, um, virtually so, uh, that there was a country within the, United, within the EU um, that had enacted a decriminalization framework um, and that seven years had elapsed and uh, there was an opportunity to study, not in a speculative sense, but in an empirical sense, what the effects of that would be. And I'm still surprised, actually, um, that the... Uh, the episode of decriminalization in Portugal is something that has been uh, studied very little and discussed even less so, even among uh, experts in, in the drug policy field. And so I think studying what has happened since 2001 in Portugal provides really a unique opportunity uh, for revitalizing the drug reform debate in the United States and elsewhere, because so much of what typically passes for drug policy debate is really nothing more than fear-mongering and speculation about what would happen if we legalized drugs or if we decriminalized drugs or lessened uh, the harsh sentences that are imposed even for nonviolent minor drug offenses. Looking at what happened in Portugal enables us to get away from the realm of speculation um, and and fear-mongering as well, and and I think provides a, a uniquely valuable opportunity in that regard. Also, I do think that this is an ideal moment to talk about and to examine what has happened in Portugal. Tim mentioned some of the events just recently that have that reflect the fact that there's far greater openness to discussing drug policy issues certainly than ever before in the United States, and and I think part of that was was catalyzed quite recently when. The White House, um, as it typically does, pretended to be interested in great grassroots input into the kinds of questions that the president is supposed to answer and, and encourage people online uh, to vote for what they consider to be the most important questions. And in virtually every field, questions about whether legalization of marijuana or drug policy reform um, should be pursued rose to the top of the charts. And I think, though, Obama's response disappointed a lot of people not so much because he said he didn't favor legalization. I don't think anybody expected him to answer otherwise, but because he was so snide and dismissive about the idea that it ought to be taken seriously, that turned into its own controversy and I think spawned unintentionally uh, some of the most meaningful and and serious drug policy debates that we've seen in in the mainstream in quite a long time. I mean, Tim mentioned the column by Joe Klein this week advocating – legalization of marijuana. And if marijuana is in Time magazine, of all places, um, I think that's a pretty good reflection that the nature of the debate uh, is evolving. I think the key to changing how drug debate takes place, drug policy debate takes place, is to refocus the question so that it ends up being entirely an empirical or pragmatic issue. There are obviously people who advocate legalization on ideological or libertarian grounds, namely the belief that the state has no right to regulate, let alone criminalize, uh, the decisions that adult citizens make about what substances they choose to use and ingest and, and put into their own body. And if you believe in that ideological principle, it doesn't much matter uh, what the pragmatic outcome of legalization well, B, you just believe that drug laws that criminalize usage are inherently illegitimate, um, and you're likely already an opponent of the criminalization framework. Likewise, if, if you believe that there is something inherently immoral about drug usage and that it's the responsibility of the state to maintain the stigma against it and for us to come together and collectively declare through the use of our criminal laws or the abuse of our criminal laws uh, this, this moral judgment that drug usage is wrong. Um, And regardless of the outcome of that policy, it's vital that we maintain that moral decree as a society. It also doesn't much matter what the pragmatic outcome of policy changes will be because then it becomes a moral question and not an empirical one. But I think largely the debate is driven by assumptions empirically about what is likely to happen if we decriminalize drugs or, or loosen our criminalization approach. And central to the debate has been this extremely unexamined assumption that if you loosen criminalization laws, let alone decriminalize or legalize, that what is going to happen inevitably 
is that there will be a massive explosion of drug usage and that drugs will start to play a much greater role in, our, in every aspect of our society. And what that assumption does is it means that any time there's a discussion of anything having to do with drugs that's negative in any way, even if the negativity is produced not by drug usage but by prohibition, any negative consequences at all that have anything to do with drugs immediately gets translated into our public discourse as something that bolsters the need to keep drugs criminalized. Because if we decriminalize, there'll be more drugs. And if there are more drugs, there will be more problems. So you look, for example, at what's happening in Mexico in the southern border of the United States, the extreme violence that's taking place as a result not of drug use, but of prohibition policies. In the public mind, those problems get linked just vaguely to drugs, and with the assumption embedded into place that decriminalization will lead to more drugs, automatically in the public mind, what is occurring in Mexico is a further reason to bolster and maintain our, our criminalization scheme. And so to me, the central question in terms of having an impact on the drug policy debate is not the ideological issues of whether there's legitimacy to criminalizing drug use. That's important, and, and I have my own views on that. Um, but that seems to be firmly embedded into place. And it's not the moral issue of are, is drug usage inherently wrong or do we want to encourage or discourage drug use because that too is a fairly static question. The question that I think matters is, is this assumption accurate about what will occur if there's decriminalization, namely, will there be this massive explosion of drug usage uh, on the part of our youth and, and, and our adult population, or is that a myth? And I think the only way to move past the speculative realm and to answer that in an adult and serious fashion is to look at the results of decriminalization that have existed in the real world and that exist now, and, and one finds that uh, in Portugal. And that's why, to me, the idea of going there and, and actually finding out what has been, what have been the actual results uh, was such a compelling project. One of the most interesting aspects of decriminalization in Portugal that I found, and I didn't expect this, um, was decriminalization took place in 2001. That's when it became effective. And I'm gonna walk through in, in just a minute uh, the events that led up to that. But the impetus behind decriminalization in Portugal was not that it's a, in a very socially progressive country that decided to have a, an interesting libertarian experiment um, and they decided to, to decriminalize on the principle that the state has no business in interfering in the private choices of, of adult citizens. That had nothing to do with the impetus for decriminalization. Nor was Portugal or is Portugal some sort of idyllic upper middle class um, nirvana um, where decriminalization could be tried without much risk. I mean, this is not Luxembourg or Monaco. Um, Portugal actually is one of the poorest uh, countries, Western European countries, if not the poorest uh, EU member states in, in all of Western Europe. They've long had extreme poverty-related social pathologies and, and problems, and in fact, the 1990s in Portugal saw probably one of the most acute and severe and uncontrollable problems with drug addiction and drug-related pathologies. They, throughout the 1990s, saw an increase in almost every metric uh, that drug policymakers look at in terms of usage, prevalence rates, sexually transmitted diseases related to uh, drugs, um, drug-related crimes, drug-related death. It was spiraling out of control. And the more they criminalized and the more resources they devoted to arresting and prosecuting and imprisoning drug users, the more acute the problems were becoming. And you can look at charts, some of which I include in my report, that detail what happened in the 1990s, that every bad metric continued steadily and often severely to increase as criminalization intensified. And so there was no sense that well, we need to decriminalize on ideological grounds or as an experiment. There is desperation on the part of policymakers, much like there is in the United States now, that no matter what it was that they were trying, no matter how much they fortified their criminalization framework, the worse the problems became. And so what they decided to do is to form a commission in 1998 that was composed of the most apolitical policymaking and medical and psychological experts that they could find. And the mandate of that commission was not to 
determine whether decriminalization was a good idea. The mandate was to examine the failures of their drug policy and determine what changes ought to be made and what optimal policies were available in order to stem the tide of their terrible drug problems. And this commission got together, and there were people from all backgrounds and previous beliefs and orientations about uh, what drug policy ought to entail, and they studied the problem in as, in, in as empirical a sense as, as, as they could because their mandate was to strip the ideological and moral questions away and, and ground whatever their assessments were in purely empirical uh, analyses. And what they concluded was that decriminalization wasn't the right thing to do politically or conceptually, that decriminalization was the policy that would most effectively enable the Portuguese government to get a hold of the spiraling and out-of-control problems with drug addiction and drug-related pathologies. It was a purely utilitarian calculus that decriminalization would be the most effective course of action. The one thing I want to add to that is that they decided from the beginning, they resolved from the beginning not to have any preconceived um, notions about what policies were likely to work, that they would just simply be taken to wherever their analysis led them. The only exception being that from the very start, they took legalization as opposed to decriminalization off the table. That was uh, the only option that they resolved that they could not and should not consider. And the reason for that is because there are all sorts of international treaties and international conventions and other kinds of international legal obligations to which Portugal and every other country are bound, is bound, that essentially compel countries to maintain a legal prohibition against drug usage, such that legalization would be inconsistent with those treaty obligations. And in fact, there are, there's an argument to make, and, and some people make it, um, and it's though not persuasive, it, it could be said to be reasonable that even decriminalization, even the act of taking drug usage out of the criminal realm, though keeping on the books a, criminal, uh, a legal prohibition, is also inconsistent with international conventions. There's drug policymakers in the United States and, and even some in Western Europe who, who argue that, but the Portuguese decided that decriminalization would be consistent with their treaty obligations, though legalization would not. And so it's possible that legalization would have ended up being the policy they ultimately embraced, but that option was taken off, off the table. So this commission produced a report in 1998 that emphatically concluded that decriminalization was the ultimate, was the optimal policy approach. A council of ministers, essentially a cabinet, uh, was then formed by the Portuguese president to review those recommendations and issue their own report as to whether those recommendations ought to be adopted. These were politicians, not merely uh, uh, policymakers shielded from political pressures. And they, too, concluded um, almost in its entirety that the commission's recommendations were persuasive and ought to be adopted. And, and that then led, in October of 2000, to the Portuguese parliament um, overwhelmingly enacting the, league, the decriminalization framework that the commission and then the council of ministers recommended. And it was then signed into law by the Portuguese president and took effect on July 1st, 2000. And one, so it was an extraordinarily pragmatic um, and rational uh, approach that led to decriminalization and purposely uh, stripped of its political and ideological components. One of the interesting aspects of the pre-decriminalization debate was that it very much resembled what the drug policy debates are like in the United States and what you could imagine they would be like if decriminalization became a serious option. As I said before, Portugal is not some socially progressive country. Um, they have a, a very short history of democracy, in fact. Um, there was dictatorship in, in Portugal up until the mid-'70s. The Catholic Church plays a very prominent and influential role in their political and religious life. Um, and so there were the kinds of arguments that one would expect uh, to be made against decriminalization from prominent politicians. There was the argument that it would lead to an explosion and an increase in drug usage, that it would be a signal to the population that the government approved of drug usage. Um, one of the principal concerns and fears was that Lisbon would become a haven for drug tourism, that European youth would flock to, to Lisbon with the excited uh, prospect that they could use drugs freely. Um, and, and so those kind of concerns needed to be overcome. And as the empirical conclusions, I think, pretty con compellingly demonstrate, those fears turned out to be entirely unfounded. Those predictions ended up being false. And so what you now have in Portugal, 
despite a very ideologically diverse political class, from conservatives to far left and, and socialists, is a virtually unanimous consensus that decriminalization has been a success. There's almost no movement of any kind among any uh, influential or popular Portuguese political faction to reverse decriminalization and return to a criminalized scheme because they've seen the two worlds and they've been able to see which one works far better, and, and that is decriminalization. And I think that fact alone is extremely compelling um, in terms of uh, their own experience. Let me just say a couple words about Portugal beyond what I've said already. I think any time in the United States there's a suggestion that we ought to look to some other country in order to see whether or not something works or doesn't work, uh, in order to inform ourselves about things that we might not uh, have given sufficient thought to, there's immediately this objection that's made. Um, it's very common, I've heard it already in, in some of the preliminary discussions I've had over this report, that what works in other countries doesn't work in the United States that there's something exceptional about our culture and our political system and our citizenry um, that really means that every other country is basically um, irrelevant um, in terms of understanding what might work here. Or at the very least, if not to that extreme, that it's irrelevant, that the fact that a certain policy works in another country doesn't mean in any compelling way that it will work here because there are such differences between the two countries. And you can, in fact, identify differences between Portugal and the United States. To begin with, Portugal is a country that's relatively quite small. It has a total population of 10 million people versus 300 million people in the United States. Um, there is ethnic and racial homogeneity in Portugal um, that obviously stands in fairly stark contrast to the United States population. Uh, there's religious homogeneity. Uh, overwhelmingly, it's, it's a Catholic population. Um, and so those are differences. Uh, but one of the things that you learn in, in the first year of law school, um, every first year law student can describe this concept to you, is that when you attempt to use judicial precedent um, as, uh, as, as instruction as to what you ought to do now, you have a legal problem and you look to prior cases and what courts have said in the past about similar legal problems, people who are untrained in the art of legal reasoning will sometimes try and find differences um, that don't really mean anything um, and that have no real um, distinction. So you might, the, the sort of classic fallacy um, is to say, well, in that case there, the plaintiff had brown hair, and in this case here, the plaintiff had blonde hair. And that, of course, is a difference, but it's a difference without any meaningful distinction whatsoever. And so I think if somebody wants to say that the success in Portugal of drug decriminalization somehow doesn't translate into the United States because of population size differences or ethnic and racial uh, homogeneity differences. The burden is on that person to explain why not just that difference exists, but why it actually matters, why, why it actually means that it's unlikely uh, to be instructive in terms of how it works in the United States. I mean, I think and I think most drug counselors and professionals in, in the field of psychology agree that drug addiction and the behavior surrounding it is fairly universal. In fact, it's certainly more similar uh, than it is different. And if governments are able to successfully address uh, the problem of drug addiction using decriminalization in Western Europe, uh, a culture that is certainly similar to the United States, if, if not close to identical in every meaningful way, um, that's certainly very compelling evidence that it will work here. And I think if someone wants to object and say that there are differences between the two countries, um, it's incumbent upon uh, whoever's doing that, whoever's making that argument, to say why those differences are actual impediments. Why, for example, a racially diverse population means that decriminalization is less likely to succeed than a country with a racially or ethnically homogenized population, because I don't see any um, argument is to justify that, that, that claim. Just a word about um, the reasons why drug decriminalization was something that these policymakers in Portugal thought would be successful. Because what you can do is you can, um, 
use statistical analysis in all sorts of ways. Um, and you can say here's 2001 when decriminalization was implemented, and here are some charts, some pretty graphs and, 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 and bar graphs showing that um, the problems of drug addiction have declined and HIV and, and hepatitis transmission related to drug addiction uh, and drug usage has remained fairly steady. Um, and you can make statistical arguments in that way. But people believe that decriminalization will worsen drug-related problems almost intuitively. So unless you can provide reasons why decriminalization is likely to improve these problems, I think the ability to persuade is much less um, than if you can actually provide reasons. And, and so when I went to Portugal, um, that was one of the questions I had. Well, let's assume that decriminalization has actually kept drug usage rates fairly steady, as the Portuguese officials and experts with whom I spoke before I went there told me. Um, and let's assume that they're actually managing those problems better than Western European countries with a criminalized scheme, as they also claimed. I'll assume that, that that's true. And when I get there, they're going to have charts that are going to confirm those claims. So then my question became, well, why? Why is it that drug decriminalization works? And, and what I found in, in speaking to them uh, was a, a consensus about what those reasons are. And I think the reasons are uh, intuitively uh, compelling just to someone using basic common sense. The first issue that uh, these drug policymakers identified as to their principal impediment pre-decriminalization in the 1990s with trying to get the drug addiction problem under control was that when you tell the population that you're going to turn them into criminals and arrest and prosecute and imprison them if they're using drugs, the last thing they're ever going to want to do is to go to the government and seek out help by identifying themselves as drug users. They become afraid of the government. A huge wall, a huge barrier is placed between the government and the citizenry as a result of criminalization for reasons that make perfect sense. And so if you're a policymaker and you want to reach drug users to educate them about the need for harm reduction and clean needles and, and, and the availability of methadone or, or treatment clinics, or if you want to encourage them to think about how to use drugs in, in a less harmful way or, or to seek out the help they need, the last thing they're going to do is listen to you because to you, to them, you are their criminalizers. You are the people who may put them into prison. And it was a huge problem for Portuguese officials who wanted to reach the population to have this wall erected between a population that feared them um, and therefore was unwilling to listen to them. And I think if you go to the communities in the United States that are most affected by our criminalization laws, that fear on the part of the citizenry of the government is every bit as, per as pervasive. Uh, and the ability of the government to reach those citizens is therefore diminished, if not uh, rendered non-existent. And what decriminalization has done is it has removed the fear on the part of the citizenry of the government so that the government can now go to the citizenry and say, we have these treatment options that uh, have been made available to you that you ought to seek out. And we want you to listen to us when we have these educational programs that talk about the dangers of drugs and drug addictions and the way in which they can be abused and the harms that come from them and the ability of the government to communicate with its populace and to offer treatment and to access those communities has been substantially enhanced as a result of decriminalization because that barrier has been removed. And what that has done is it has enabled all sorts of addicts and people with drug problems and people using dirty needles or um, other forms of reckless drug behavior to seek out government programs that enable them to reduce their drug usage or reduce the harms that come from it or to get off drugs entirely. And that is one compelling way that decriminalization actually decreases drug usage, which is it enables the government to be more effective in bringing treatment options to the population. Second way I think is even more important and even easier to understand, which is as we all know, if you deploy a huge police force to search for and arrest and uh, imprison and prosecute nonviolent drug offenders and imprison people by the hundreds of thousands um, in, in prisons, you are burning money um, in, in, in the prison state. You are simply throwing money um, towards a program, a policy that is designed to do nothing but take drug users and, and drug addicts and, and put them into cages. Once you decriminalize and you no longer arrest and prosecute and, and, and imprison drug users, enormous amounts of money are then freed up. And if it's a poor country like Portugal or a country with significant budgetary and financial constraints like the United States, freeing up enormous amounts of money can create 
extraordinarily valuable opportunities on the part of the government to address drug problems. You can uh, create all kinds of potent educational campaigns. You can build treatment facilities and pay drug counselors and pay psychologists um, so that people who never had access to treatment before now have ample and well-funded treatment programs. Um, you save lots of money, but you also provide much better services to the drug-using population so that people who want treatment can then afford it. Portugal had virtually no ability to provide meaningful treatment in the 1990s as their program, as their problems with drugs skyrocketed because they were wasting it all on trying to imprison people. It was decriminalization that freed up that money uh, that has, and you can look at the resources devoted in Portugal to treatment since 2001, that has really skyrocketed. And so now, instead of being put into prison, drug addicts are going to treatment centers, and they're learning how to control their drug usage or, or to get off drugs entirely. And so I think when you look at those two aspects, it's not surprising that drug usage rates have not skyrocketed the way they have in, in Western Europe and in the United States, but have uh, clearly begun to subside and in some cases uh, significantly decrease. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the law and how it actually works in practice. And I go into that in some detail in the report, so I'll just kind of paint with broad strokes um, what, what actually uh, the structure is. As Tim said in his introduction, um, there's a significant difference between legalization, which means that uh, there are no longer any prohibitions whatsoever on drug usage, and decriminalization, which means that under the law, it is still prohibited to use drugs, but that it is no longer brought into the criminal realm. It is no longer in any way a criminal offense. You are not charged with a crime. You are not threatened with prison. Uh, you don't have a criminal record. There's no conviction. There's no judge. There's no court. It is removed entirely from the criminalization scheme. And although some countries have had, now have de facto decriminalization for some kinds of drugs, mostly marijuana, whereby they've decided that imprisoning people for possession of marijuana is no longer a wise thing to do, even though the state retains the authority to do so. Portugal is the only state explicitly in, the, in Western Europe and in the Western world <clears throat> to explicitly decriminalize drugs. And they've decriminalized all drugs, from heroin and methamphetamines and cocaine down to marijuana. And the uh, decriminalization applies only to personal usage, which is defined by the law to mean possessing a quantity of drugs sufficient for the average user to have 10 days' worth of a supply. Uh, once you have an excess of 10 days' worth of supply, you're no longer a mere user. You're now a trafficker. Uh, and trafficking, drug trafficking, remains criminal in Portugal for reasons mostly having to do with the fact that their neighbors and, and the United States would not tolerate a country legalizing drug trafficking because of the perception that that would adversely harm other countries as well. So the decriminalization approach applies only to drug users. So if you go to somebody's apartment who wants to sell you drugs, who has a stash of uh, a month's worth of marijuana, they are committing a crime. But by buying a certain quantity under 10 days of personal usage, you are not committing a crime in any way. Providing drugs to minors continues to be um, a crime. Um, and as I said, all forms of drug usage, including small amounts of marijuana, remain prohibited by law, just not any longer as a criminal offense, only as an administrative one. What happens is if a police officer knows or sees that you have drugs or are using drugs, um, they are required, there's no discretion, they're still required to issue a citation um, to you for violating the law. And what happens is that cite, but they don't arrest you. And what happens is that citation is then sent to what's called a dissuasion commission um, that is set up by the decriminalization law. And the dissuasion commission consists of three members, one appointed by what is the equivalent of the justice ministry, which is usually someone with a legal background, a lawyer, and two are appointed by what is the equivalent of the health ministry. And those are typically physicians or, or counselors or psychologists, health professionals. Um, and this dissuasion commission is a three-person commission that ultimately decides the disposition of the citation. And if a citation is sent, you have 72 hours to uh, appear. They will give you a, a time and a date within 72 hours, and it actually works. 72 hours is, is typically when you appear. And what's most interesting about these dissuasion commissions is that they are purposely designed to avoid all of the trappings 
of any kind of a court. They're designed to be informal and to avoid any notion of guilt. So the person who cited has the prerogative to demand that no notices be sent to their home to preserve their privacy. Uh, the three members of the commission purposely avoid anything like robes or um, any kind of uh, formal clothing that suggests that they're an authority sitting in judgment. They sit on the same level rather than on an elevated platform. The entire proceeding is designed to uh, convey informality and non-judgment, to offer the person who cited the opportunity for treatment rather than uh, some sort of mandatory punishment or judgment, and in over 85% of the cases, those proceedings end with absolutely nothing happening, with what is called a suspended proceeding um, conditioned on the person going to treatment, and that uh, whether the person fulfills that treatment is actually optional. There's no enforcement mechanism to make them go to treatment. There's no penalty for their failure to do so. And it's designed, the reason why there is this proceeding at all, is it's designed to bring citizens and the government together so that when the citizens want treatment, the government is there to enable and facilitate and to provide it. And, and there's lots of details about how the various sanctions work that are available to the commission, which are very rarely imposed, that I include in my report and I won't detail here. But I think what's most important about understanding how these commissions work is that they purposely avoid all guilt and are designed to encourage, upon an assessment by health professionals, not criminal professionals, um, whether or not treatment options are, are, are to be, ought to be uh, offered and, and what type of treatment um, is, is appropriate. Just one word about police enforcement, because that's something that people typically uh, wonder about, is, is um, how do the police, under decriminalization in Portugal, continue to view uh, the uh, utility of issuing citations. And it's very difficult. Um, you can talk to police officers, as I did. You can speak with law enforcement officials, as I did. But it's very difficult to acquire any sort of understanding statistically um, or anything beyond anecdotally about how police officers uh, view decriminalization. But what seems pretty clear anecdotally um, is that at first there was kind of a generational split among police officers. Older police officers tended to view uh, this dissuasion commission as kind of a joke. You know, they would issue a citation to a user, and 24 hours later they would see that user back on the street, sometimes using, and they would think, why am I going to waste my time and effort and energy giving a citation to somebody who has no prospect of going to prison? But what even... Uh, older officers eventually understood, and the, the, the almost the overwhelming majority of younger officers uh, seem to now believe, and, and after seven years, this percentage has increased, is that it was criminalization that was futile because they would issue citations and people would be out on the street 24 or 48 hours later, but without treatment. They would just have, have sat in a cage uh, for 48 hours and, and still be addicts. Uh, whereas now, you actually take these people and force them to go to a process where treatment is offered to them. And these officers believe that there's much greater utility in issuing citations now when there's something constructive being done in response to those citations rather than something punitive and, and counterproductive. And, and I think the chart in the report that I included demonstrates that there's, it's been a fairly steady number of citations issued, even steadily increasing which I think suggests that there's confidence in, in law enforcement officers um, with regard to how they perceive decriminalization. Now, what has happened in Portugal since decriminalization? Most of that, the answer to that is statistical, and, and I'll refer to a couple of the charts, um, and, but I want to sort of speak in, in, in broader terms about what has happened in Portugal since decriminalization. And, and I, I tried to, to, to categorize or, or to divide the analysis into two areas. First, what has happened in Portugal in absolute terms? Have prevalence rates increased? What about disease, drug-related diseases, and other pathologies? Um, and secondly, how do those trends, whether good or bad, compare to other EU states and, and to the United States, uh, Australia, and Canada? Because obviously, if there's some moderate increase in usage after decriminalization, but massive increases in Western Europe, uh, the fact that there's some moderate increases in usage doesn't indict the policy. You would need to do a comparative assessment uh, to determine whether or not, on balance, decriminalization um, has been effective. And, you know, I think that one of the things that drug policymakers look at more than anything else are trends in prevalence rates 
among adolescents and post-adolescents, meaning the 15 to 24 age group, and especially the uh, 15 to 19 age group, because behavior that's there with regard to drugs is most predictive about ultimately what the population will do about how attitudes are formed with regard to drug usage. And there are a couple of charts that I just want to point to that if you talk to Portuguese policymakers over and over, they will point to these as being the most significant confirmations of the wisdom of their policy. And on their face, they're just actually quite compelling. Um, the first one is, and if you have the book, these are a little small, so you may not be able to see the details well. So you might want to look in the actual report. Um, this one is from page 13. It's, it's figure five. And what this shows are prevalence rates, which means the percentage of the studied population, which over its lifetime uh, tries a particular drug. So if the percent prevalence rate for cocaine for the 15-19 age group is 15, it means that 15% of the individuals in that age group have tried cocaine at least once at some point. That is typically the gold standard of drug policymakers uh, to look at drug usage rates. And what you see in this chart, which compares 2001, that was the year that uh, decriminalization first took effect, although it took effect in October. Uh, so most of 2001 was under Portugal's harsh decriminalization scheme. What you see is that in every category of narcotic, um, obviously methadone, um, K, GHB are, are new drugs and, and weren't studied in 2001, but heroin, uh, mushrooms, LSD, amphetamines, cocaine, ecstasy, and, and, and marijuana um, have fairly substantial decreases from the last year of criminalization, 2001, to 2006, which is five years or four full years after decriminalization. And, and that's for uh, what essentially is the 10th to 12th grade equivalents um, for the Portuguese. And, and drug policymakers are ecstatic about uh, this chart, as um, I think it's not hard to understand why. Figure six, which is on page 14, um, I think is the one that they will point to the most, even though it might not be as immediately compelling. These show uh, prevalence, lifetime prevalence rates for all drugs uh, for three different population groups, 15 to 24-year-olds, 15 to 19-year-olds, 20 to 24-year-olds. And this compares 2001 and 2007. And although there's some mild increases in the 15 to 24 group and the 20 to 24 group, though far less than the increases in virtually every other Western European country during this period. In the 15 to 19 age group, but essentially are high school students, by far the most significant um, demographic group for uh, understanding the effects of legalization and how attitudes about drugs are formed, on an absolute basis, usage rates have decreased from the, year, the last year of criminalization to six years uh, later. And, and I think... Um, that is extraordinarily compelling. And, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, what these two charts show about the absolute drug usage rate is that you can debate whether or not it's fair to say that decriminalization has decreased drug usage. Clearly, in some demographic categories, it has. Um, in other demographic categories, there are some mild increases. But what is absolutely clear is that it is unreasonable to suggest that there's any evidence at all that decriminalization has led to the kind of significant increases in drug usage that opponents of decriminalization invariably predict and in Portugal uh, insisted would occur. Those have just been empirically disproven. Now, I just want to uh, briefly touch upon some of the comparative um, statistics that are most compelling when you look at Portugal versus the EU. And I wanted to say a word about um, just to gauge on the time, about three minutes. Sure. About uh, statistics and, 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 and drug data and the like. Um, it's, it's very difficult uh, to gather drug data that remains completely consistent uh, over the years. And it's especially difficult to compare drug data between different countries because different countries have different methodologies. The questions they ask are different. Uh, countries with resource constraints have difficulty um, studying these issues consistently. And so it's certainly the case that there are always gaps in this kind of data. It doesn't have the sort of mathematical exactitude that, say, economic data from a first world country might offer. But I don't think anyone doubts that they are, in general, reliable barometers for what is taking place. And if you look at figure 15 on page 21, um, and this is actually compiled 
both by the Portuguese agency and by the principal European drug monitoring agency, which also by coincidence is based in, in Lisbon. What this does is it compares uh, prevalence rates from many EU states for marijuana for the ages of 15 to 64. And you can see that Portugal, as compared to all of these states with harsh criminalization schemes, has the lowest prevalence rate for marijuana um, as compared to any of those other countries. Figure, I'm just going to skip this one here in just a second. Um, figure 17, which is on page 24, um, has the prevalence rates for that same age group, 15 to 64 years, for cocaine. And Portugal is very close to the bottom, uh, post-decriminalization, as compared to Eastern European countries. And in fact, some of the countries with the harshest criminalization schemes, like Great Britain and Estonia, um, have not just higher rates for cocaine, but five to six to seven times uh, higher rates. And across the board, if you look at the number of deaths related to drugs in Portugal and compare the skyrocketing rates in the 1990s to what has happened to post-decriminalization, you find substantial improvements, just as a pure matter of empiricism, in virtually every one of, of these categories. And, and so I think that if you want to look at what the arguments were against decriminalization in Portugal and what they are in the United States anytime you raise the prospect. The strongest empirical evidence is that those predictions end up being untrue. And what decriminalization does is not only enable policymakers to reach the population in, in a much healthier and, and more candid way, it actually enables uh, these problems to be brought under control much more effectively than where criminalization remains. And, and I think once that assumption in our drug policy debate is gutted, which this evidence in the most rational sense does, that decriminalization leads to an explosion of usage rates, I think that is what can really transform drug policy debate in the United States from this sort of moral and, and irrational driven uh, discussion into something that is much more serious and, and substantive um, and adult. And, and I just hope that people um, begin to look at these questions based on evidence like this rather than on, on the sort of emotion-driven uh, dialogue that we've had for, for decades in this country surrounding drug use. So thanks very much for uh, listening. I really appreciate um, your taking the time. Okay, we are now going to have the benefit of hearing another, perhaps more skeptical view of the Portuguese model. Uh, Dr. Peter Reuter is a well-known expert in drug policy circles. He has testified before the Congress several times about crime and drugs, and he has also served as a consultant to various government agencies, not only in the United States, but also with government agencies abroad. Uh, Dr. Reuter is widely published in the field of drug policy and criminology, co-publishing uh, several books, and he's published widely in the scholarly journals. Since 1985, most of his research has dealt with alternative approaches to controlling drug problems both in the United States and in Western Europe. He teaches at the University of Maryland, and he is the director of that university's Center on the Economics of Crime and Justice Policy. So would you please welcome Dr. Peter Reuter. Thank you very much. Um, my, my skepticism apparently is notorious, but, and it's entirely an accurate characterization of me. Um, uh, first, let me say I'm, I'm delighted by two aspects of this event. One is an excellent study of a small foreign country. Um, and I think uh, the introduction was entirely right. It's nice to know we can learn from somewhere far away that none of us have really know anything about. Um, and secondly, such a large turnout. I have not talked to an audience of this size in Washington about drug policy uh, for a long time. I do some work related to money laundering, and that involves money, and so there, there are larger audiences for that. But uh, drug policy has been sort of a, uh, well, not, not, a, not a very promising topic for audiences. Um, uh, so let me start by saying that I, I think it is fair to say that decriminalization in Portugal has indeed, as, as Glenn's documented, achieved its central goals. Um, drug use did not rise. I mean, the standard concern is that it would indeed lead to a large increase. All the evidence on decriminalization with respect to cannabis, uh, I spent a lot of time in Europe, so I say cannabis rather than marijuana, and it seems appropriate here. 
um, uh, is consistent with that very either no increase or very small increase from uh, decriminalization. But this is, of course, much broader uh, than cannabis. And it's a very useful addition to that literature to say that decriminalization turned out not to lead to a substantial increase. It didn't lead to Portugal becoming a, a tourist destination, and tourism is very important to um, a, a drug tourist destination. Tourism is very important to, to Portugal. I think it's worth noting that Spain is also a decriminalization country, not merely for cannabis, but for drugs generally. There are some subtle differences in the two regimes. It may be that if you're planning to smoke dope, Spain continues to be just as attractive as Portugal for those purposes. And the Portuguese regime is very oriented towards local use rather than foreign users. It picks up almost no foreign users, and I suspect that the police are particularly uninterested in foreign users, but they've not become reputed to be a, a, a drug tourist destination. I have a question about whether it has succeeded in reducing the intrusiveness of the state, a standard problem with cannabis decriminalization is what's called in the criminal justice literature net widening, which is now the police uh, don't have to put as much effort into processing an arrest, and they go out and make many more arrests when the penalties are reduced. That was, uh, has been the experience both in the UK and in some Australian jurisdictions. We've seen a huge increase in the number of arrests, even though those arrests result in non-criminal processing of the, of the arrestee. In the case of Portugal, uh, it appears that more people are processed in administrative proceedings post-2001 than were arrested for drug use prior to that. But I know enough about criminal justice statistics in foreign countries to know that interpretation is very difficult. And maybe what I read as arrests is really some other part of the process, so I could be wrong about that. But I have some concern that police in Portugal, as in other countries, have, in a sense, taken advantage of this and brought more people into the net, even though the consequence for any individual is much less benign. Um, my skepticism is going to get expressed in two forms. One is, how big a change is this really in policy terms? And the second one is, um, consistent with a comment of, of Glenn's uh, the end of his uh, presentation, which is, gee, how much can we associate policy change with the changes that we observe in terms of drug use and drug-related harms? Um, it's worth noting that there are two other European countries that have essentially decriminalized all drugs, Italy and Spain. Uh, Spain is mentioned in, the, uh, in Glenn's study I don't think Italy is. The Italian um, experience is sort of interesting. Uh, they had a conventional criminalization regime through the mid-70s. Uh, they started to see rising number of uh, heroin-related uh, deaths. And they believed, as the experts in Portugal said in 2008, that the criminal law got in the way of heroin addicts approaching treatment system. And so they saw that rise in, in heroin deaths as probably uh, related to the criminalization. So they decriminalized in about 1975. Uh, the number of heroin-related deaths continued to rise. In 1990, they reversed and went back to criminalization. And then by an almost, you know, j just fortuitously, they re-decriminalized in 1993. From some points of view, just wonderful to study this if only the Italians would collect some data, but they don't. So I, you know, all one can say is something about the number of drug-related deaths. Um, uh, and, and Spain really, as part of the we're beyond Franco regime, um, decriminalized uh, shortly after uh, Franco's uh, death um, really to reduce the intrusiveness of the state as much as anything, as much as it was a statement about drug policy. Um, now, I've said that maybe, maybe the change isn't actually all that important to change. And what I mean by that is I'm skeptical of the claim that it was the criminal uh, statute that sort of what restricted... Uh, 
um, that, that limited uh, uh, a, a so someone who was drug dependent from seeking treatment. Uh, and let me offer some evidence from, from other countries. In countries with perfectly conventional uh, criminal justice uh, approaches to, um, to the drug problem, like Australia and the UK, you have um, treatment take-up rates of about 60%. That is, if you look at the heroin-dependent population, between 50 and 60% of them are in treatment at any one time. Uh, it's, you know, maybe given Portugal's history of a repressive, repressive regime from the Salazar era, there was, the, the criminal law stands as a bigger barrier uh, for treatment seeking uh, than it would in countries with, without that history, like Australia uh, and the UK or Switzerland and the Netherlands. Um, but I have some question about whether experts really are expert about this in identifying those barriers, and whether experts in 2008 reporting what was the problem in 2000 uh, are not in part rationalizing uh, the events that later occurred, because I do not doubt that there was a large increase in treatment seeking. But there was a large treatment in, increase in treatment seeking throughout much of Western Europe during this period. And part of it has to do with the aging of the heroin addict population, which has occurred in most of Western Europe and in the United States. Uh, what we see here uh, in Switzerland, not so much the UK, certainly the Netherlands, um, I think in Italy as well, uh, is evidence that the population of um, heroin dependence, mostly initiated heroin use in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. And since at least the year 2000, uh, that population has steadily been getting older and has been more likely to seek treatment. And I suspect that Portugal, um, a laggard in this respect, and I mean laggard is merely descriptive, not pejorative, a laggard in this respect, um, is now seeing that same end of, of heroin epidemic aging treatment-seeking by its, its heroin-dependent de heroin population. In general, much of what is recorded here by way of sort of improvement in the drug situation, I think is consistent with what's happened to many other Western countries. Um, cannabis use has declined amongst youth in most Western countries since about 2000. You know, the, 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 what you see across many countries is an increase in cannabis use amongst youth through the 1990s, and then an ending and a decline, sometimes quite substantial decline, starting sometime between 1998 and 2002. In Australia, the most recent household survey shows youthful uh, uh, cannabis use down by about one-third from its peak in 1998. For the uh, U.S., um, it's less than that, but it's down, uh, it's down noticeably. Uh, U.K., it's certainly down by 20% over that period. It does not, um, it doesn't threaten the central conclusion, which is that decriminalization did not lead to a substantial increase, but it reminds you that these policy changes occur in the context of large changes in youth culture. I mean, I am convinced that popular culture is a much more important influence than any policy measure with respect to cannabis use. I wouldn't make the same claim about uh, cocaine and, and, and heroin, but these, you know, anything that happens in Finland and Australia can surely only be linked by, I mean, maybe by extremes from the, um, from the equator, but that's, that's particularly implausible. I think, you know, if popular culture is the story about what goes on with drug um, uh, so, use. So when trying to explain changes in drug use patterns, I would put policy in the second rank of factors that you should look at. Um, that sounds quite cynical, but it's in fact very supportive of decriminalization. Because what it says is that if decriminalization reduces the intrusiveness of the state and inequality, and I'll get to that in a moment, 
and has very little consequence for drug use, then what's the argument against it? And in country after country, not just in the United States, it's clear that decriminalization of, that, that, that um, uh, criminalization of drug possession has had disparate effects on uh, vulnerable groups. In the UK, the, I think the arrest rate or the incarceration rate for drug possession uh, for uh, migrant groups is something like 10 times that for natives. Uh, even nice countries like Sweden turn out to have similar, uh, similar patterns. So th there's a lot to be said for decriminalization, even if you know, it does not have the benign consequences uh, that, that, that uh, might be inferred um, in, in Portugal. It has no it has, there's no evidence of negative consequences, and that's really all you need for these, uh, for these purposes, with a caveat of worrying about, uh, about net widening. Do I have two more minutes? Um, we then get to the question of, would it work here? Now, I, I was earlier this week in Australia, and it was wonderful to have a contrast of a country which I, I grew up in, uh, where there's the colonial cringe. Everywhere else does it better than we do it. So we always learn from other countries. We couldn't possibly be a leader in anything. And come back here where we couldn't possibly learn from elsewhere since we are the leader in, in everything. But sort of putting that, that aside, the question is how do we learn from other countries? Um, and I think it's important to see you know, the, the experience uh, with, in Portugal as sort of one more piece of, of evidence. Uh, it doesn't prove anything. It's one more piece of evidence that helps move us towards a uh, sort of, uh, which helps strengthen the argument that decriminalization would not have any serious adverse, would have minimal adverse consequences and very substantial desirable consequences. And again, I think that's all we need from this. And um, I think it's wonderful that uh, we now have a clear and well-written and well-disseminated study um, of Portugal, because I think we can, uh, with respect to drug policy, learn a lot from other countries. Thank you. <laughs>